This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Spend a little time briefly explaining what just happened. David is the king of Israel. And they are at war right now. His army's at war. He's staying at home in Jerusalem. He does not go to war. And it was late one afternoon. He decides to go on a walk on his rooftop. And he sees a woman bathing. And so he calls his servants and says, who is this? And they say, oh, that's Bathsheba. That is the wife of Uriah. And Uriah's out at war right now. That's his wife. At that point, he should have walked away. Should have been done. It should have been end of story. That's it. But no. It says, 2 Samuel chapter 11, that he had his messengers go into her house and take her. And he took her from her house and he slept with her. You understand what this is? You see what just happened? This was not David wooing Bathsheba. Not wooing her and saying, like, don't you like me? I'm the king, all this. No. This was David seeing something that he wanted and taking it. This was David using his power and his authority and taking what did not belong to him. This was a royal rape. And he took her. And he slept with her. Shortly after he finds out, he conceives. She's pregnant. So David says, we, we, I, I can't let this get out. I can't let this become public. I, I have to fix this. I have to cover it up. And so he comes up with this plan, and he brings Uriah back from war. And he says, okay, I'll bring him back and say, hey, you should be with your wife. So he does. He brings him back. And he says, hey, you, go home. Be with your wife. And Uriah, being the man that he was, he said, no. He slept at the king's gate. He says, I can't have that kind of pleasure while my comrades are out at war. So David tries to get him drunk thinking maybe then he'll loosen up, then he'll go. But even so, it did not work. So what does David do? He writes a letter to Joab, the commander of the army. He writes a letter to Joab and says, here, here's the plan. Put Uriah in the front of the army. When the enemy comes close, draw back. Leave him there by himself. And so David writes a letter. He gives it to Uriah and says, here, Uriah, give this to Joab. Uriah hands Joab his own death sentence. And so it happens. Uriah's in the front. Enemy draws near. They pull back. Now Uriah is dead by the indirect hands of David. So David hears word of it. He then marries Bathsheba. Thinks, okay, now I'm in the clear. And she eventually bears him a son. Then chapter 12. It's been almost a year since his sin with Bathsheba. Almost a year of him living in this guilt just tormenting his soul, the weight of that sin and shame not being dealt with. And God sent the prophet Nathan to David as a grace into his life to wake up his conscience of his own sin. And Nathan tells a story. He says There's a, there was a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many sheep. And the poor man had one just little ewe lamb. Just, and he loved this little lamb and he cared for it. He nurtured it. 
and a traveler's coming by, and, and the rich man, right, he, he wants to provide food for him, but instead of taking one of his own sheep, he goes to the poor man's house, and he takes that little ewe lamb, and he cooks it. He cooks it for the traveler. And David, he's furious. He's irate, and he says, this man deserves to die. And Nathan, very bold prophet, says to David, says, God has put away your sin. Say that God has put away his sin. And it's at this point, I'm sorry, Nathan said, David, you are that man. I'm jumping ahead of myself. Like, wow, really? He said, David, you are that man. He said, you are that man. He reveals himself in that parable. And at this point, we see the repentance of David. And he repents to God, and he said that he sinned against him. He says, yes, God, I've sinned against you. He recognizes himself, and then Nathan responds by saying, the Lord has put away your sin. I just get so excited about that part. The Lord has put away your sin. And then here in Psalm 51, we see an inside look on the heart of David. His confession and the refuge that he finds in God. So our first section here, verses one through six, true confession admits to sin and leads to the mercy of God. If you're following along in your notes, it says the admittance to sin. That's a typo, I apologize. It should say the admission of sin. The admission of sin. David takes full ownership and responsibility for his sin. Look at verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He knows what he did was wrong and he owns it as his sin. Not anybody else's, but his. It's his alone, his sin. You see, the tendency is to be like our first father, Adam, is it not? Oh, it was the woman that you gave me. To play the blame game, right? To shift, shifting responsibility to, to someone other than ourselves. Oh, well, you, you shouldn't have used that tone with me. That's why I got angry. Oh, I was, I, I, I was really tired. It was a long day at work. Oh, well, you know, he, he's, he's, been sent, he's been getting under my nerves for so long. I, I, of course, I'm going to lose my patience eventually. No, none of this. He didn't say, oh, man, you know, she shouldn't have been bathing where I could have seen her. He didn't say, oh, my guards shouldn't have gotten her for me. They, they should have known and just stopped. No. David accepts God's verdict. He's guilty. Period. No excuses. No blame shifting, guilty. There is no true biblical confession until you own it for what it is, your sin. Your sin. As long as you keep using other people or our culture or, or, or your genes or, or, or your upbringing or whatever it is as the reason for your sin, even though you have the words of confession on your lips, if it's not truly admitted as your own, not true, genuine confession. See, this was not just weakness in a difficult moment. It was not just an accident that shouldn't have happened. No, this was wickedness, and it was a sin against God, just as every single one of our sins are as well. Not only does he admit to his own sin, but he recognizes who it is that he sinned against. God himself, look at verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
you and you only. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. But that's not what he's getting at here. It's much deeper than that. He understands that his sin is greater than that. That ultimately his sin is against God. Our sin affects others horizontally, yes. We'll get to that later. But our sin is much deeper than that. It offends vertically. As one author put it, sin transcends the human relation. It strikes at the throne of God. I believe there would be less sinning in the Christian life if we fully realize and understand that our, our offenses, our sin, reaches the courts of heaven. Our sin is not just about our relationship with one another, but it extends beyond that. And it's a direct offense against God himself. Like David, we ought to take full responsibility of our sins. See, it does not stop there. David goes to God and he receives mercy from him. See, in confessing our sin, we see the mercy of God. He directs his cry to God, to God himself, the very one he once sinned against. He's crying out to him for mercy in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, the only reason we dare come to God and hope for a solution to our sin is because of his mercy. That's it. He recognizes that his sin deserves judgment. He says in verse 4, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He knows that's what he deserves. But he's appealing to God, not based on what he deserves, not based on the judgment he deserves, but he's appealing to God instead of what he desperately needs, divine mercy and grace. He doesn't plead for justice. Oh, he doesn't dare plead for justice. He pleads for mercy. See, we don't deserve to be let go. We deserve judgment, but in his great mercy, he withholds the judgment that we deserve. Psalm 103.10 says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. And so we appeal to his mercy. Oh, and the good news is that God is rich in mercy, says Ephesians 2.4. So that's our plea, his mercy. See, David's plea was not to help him make up for his mistakes. It was not, God, help me be better so I can cancel out all, all this wrong that I've done. Let me, just, let me just tip the scales of righteousness. I know that I've been pretty unrighteous, and so I'm sure that scale is weighing a lot. So let me just do more righteous so I can weigh it out or maybe be even a little bit more righteous. No, that's not his plea. His plea is for mercy. Sometimes we sin, we go to prayer. Instead of starting off by asking God for mercy, we start off by saying, God, I won't do it again. We start bargaining with God or we try making it up to God and we say, God, I'll, I'll do better next time. I promise. I'll be better next time. All this is is a form of Phariseeism. Seeking to do your part to make yourself right before God. No, that's not David's plea. No pledges. No promises. 
No payback. Mercy. It is safe to admit your sin before God because there is refuge found in the mercy of God. He is a merciful God. Now, being merciful does not mean that he just overlooks sin. He is still a just God. We can't forget this. We can't forget that he is just. What kind of God would he be if he were not a God of justice? Imagine, imagine if you were Bathsheba's dad. Imagine you're Bathsheba's dad and you hear that Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin, that you're forgiven. If I'm Bathsheba's dad, I'm, I'm saying, what? What are you talking about? He's forgiven. What do you mean that God's put away his sin? No, 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 I want justice. This man went into my daughter's house and he took her. And he slept with her. He killed my son-in-law. And you're saying his sins are forgiven? You're, you're saying he can just go? Are you not a God of justice? Do you not take sin seriously? Oh, and God would say, yes, I take sin very seriously. So seriously that I will send my son and I will slay him on the cross. And I'm not overlooking the sin but my judgment will be satisfied through the sacrifice of my own son. That's how seriously I take sin. You see, Christian, you are forgiven because Christ took the punishment and the wrath that you deserve. Mercy and justice. Secondly, we see that true confession seeks cleansing and leads to renewal and restoration. You see this in verses 7 through 12. See, we must recognize the cleansing that is needed. As he fully accepted the responsibility of his own sin, he's now aware of the grotesqueness of his sin and of the stain that nothing on earth can remove. Only God can remove such a stain. But he's confident in this. He's confident in the power of God to make him clean. He says, look, in, in verse 7, he says, purge me and I shall be clean. He says, I shall be whiter than snow. You see that confidence? He doesn't say, God, maybe I'll be clean. Maybe I'll be whiter than snow. He says, I shall be. There's not an ounce of doubt. It's not because of goodness in his own life, but it's because of the goodness and the mercy of God. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop. Purge me with hyssop. I, I believe there's intentional imagery here. Hyssop is a, is a small, bushy plant. It was often used for cleaning ceremonies. And I believe that the image David has in mind here is that of a leper. We see in Leviticus 14 that in the day of cleansing, the leper would dip the hyssop in blood and water, and they'd sprinkle it on themselves seven times to be cleaned. David understood that his sin defiled him and it stained him to the point that he needs to be cleaned. Something he could not do on his own, but he needs God to do for him. Is not a leper a wonderful picture of us? Could David have viewed himself in such a way as a leper? Rotten from the inside out. Alienated. Hopeless. Needing God to do a miracle in order to make him clean. 
Do we have a sickness? Not called leprosy, but it's called sin. We've been stained, and we need to be made clean. And God shall make us clean, and he shall wash us and make us whiter than snow. Your sin may be great. It may be even greater than David's, but God's mercy is more. And he can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now David asked that God would blot out his iniquities in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This blot out, this word for blot out is a legal term. Like from a record book. He knows that there is a legal guilt. He sees his need of removal of guilt from a record book. See, our sins carry with it a spiritual legal demand. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Beautiful passage. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Listen to this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside and nailing it to the cross. You see, he has forgiven us all of our trespasses. And he did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We had legal demands, and we stand guilty in the courtroom of God. The record of debt in which we owe, God canceled it. Completely gone. How did he do this? By just looking the other way? I'll just pretend like that didn't happen. No, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. See, Christ paid the debt that we owed. Our record of debt was nailed to the cross of Christ. The legal demands that we carried, Christ bore on his shoulders that we would be made free so that we would be cleansed, so that he would blot out our iniquities, Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Blots out our transgressions. You see, God is not just blotted out. No, he goes further. He makes us clean. It says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me. That word create is the Hebrew word bara, which is the same word used in Genesis 1 in which God created the heavens and the earth. It's a very specific word for create. It's a word used only for what God can do. It is a word used that means to create out of nothing. We don't know what that is. We, we can't do that. We can't create something out of nothing. We create things using existing materials or existing ideas, but to truly create nothing Something out of nothing? We can't do that. Only God can truly create something out of nothing. And this is what David is asking for, that God would supernaturally, divinely create in him something that he cannot create on his own, a clean heart. That's what he needs God to do for him. Do you see your need to be cleansed from the inside out? Do you see your need for that? You know it more than the rest of us do. You know every sinful thought that you have. 
that you're glad no one else knows you're thinking those thoughts. You know your sinful, wrong desires. You know the secrets that you keep hidden, that you'd be embarrassed if anyone found out. God knows those. You see, we, we don't just need cleansing from the outside, but from the inside out. Everything. But we cannot clean it ourselves. We cannot give ourselves a clean heart, but we need God to create something out of nothing. A clean heart. And indeed he does. He blots out our iniquities and he creates in us a clean heart. And in doing so, we receive renewal and restoration from God. See, David says, look, don't just do something for my record, but do something for my heart. I have sinned. I've been stained. I've been polluted. I've been defiled. I need to be changed. Indeed, God does change us. Look at verse 10b, going on to 12. He says, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, these verses, especially verse 11, uh, there are a lot of different views on what this can mean. Uh, We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at all the different views and making arguments for every side. We're not going to spend all the time doing that. But I do think that it's helpful for us to understand the difference of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, one of the blessings of the new covenant is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in his people. This was not the case in David's time. David personally witnessed the Holy Spirit being taken from Saul. David knew that the Holy Spirit was taken from Samson. Doubtless, this was on his mind. Like, he knows that he sinned greatly, and he's saying, God, please don't leave me. God, I need you. I need your presence. I need your Holy Spirit in me. And he's fearful that he might share the same fate as Saul and Samson. He's in a place in his repentance where he wants to turn away from his sin, and he wants to live in obedience to God. He knows he can't fight sin and be restored and be changed unless God is with him. He knows that he needs that closeness and he needs that presence of God to be with him, to strengthen him. He now understands his weakness and his dependence on God. In times of sin, do we not feel distant from God? While positionally, we, we, we have never truly departed from God, we can feel that, that emotional emptiness, that longing for him. He no longer wants that. He wants to be close so he can rest in his mercy, so he can be restored, so he can have the strength to live for him. And how, how can he do this? Well, he goes on in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, he needs God to restore unto him the joy of his salvation. Christian, this is what we need to fight sin. We need the joy of our salvation to be restored. We need the sweetness of the gospel to be the weapon that we wield in our fight against sin. You find it at all interesting that this is his, his request? Like everything he's done, his request is restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's his request. At first we might think, well, th- this all started with sexual sin. 
So then he ought to pray for sexual restraint. He ought to pray for purity, for accountability, for protected eyes. Like this is how he's going to fight this sin. Well, sexual sin was not the disease. It was a symptom of the disease. See, he gave in a sexual sin because he didn't have the fullness of joy of, in Christ and of his salvation. He needs to remember the joy of his salvation. When you realize the wretched sinner you are and you realize the amazing grace that you received and the joy of your salvation restored and, and your, then you, you, your desire is no longer to sin, but your desire is now to worship God. You say, God, how, how can you love me like this? How can you love such a sinner like me? Look at this grace. Look at this mercy. What else can I do but worship you? Christian, do not let the gospel grow cold in your heart. Maybe you need to pray that the joy of your salvation is renewed. Do you remember? Christian, do you remember the sweetness of the grace of God? Do you remember the sweetness of the gospel? That he would love you? That he would die for you? That he will never leave you nor forsake you? That you are no longer eternally dead and a child of wrath, but you are now made alive in Christ and are seated at his table. That you were blind, but now you see. Why? Why you? Why did he choose to love you? Why did he choose to love me? Why? It was not because of anything that we have done. It's all by his grace. Remember the sweetness of the gospel. You have joy in your salvation. Confess your sins and be renewed and be restored. Lastly, true confession is an example to others and leads to worshiping God. Verses 13 through 19. See, confessing our sins is a beautiful example to those around us. When you've experienced the deep love and mercy of God, it creates an eagerness to share with others what God has done in your life. Look at David in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David is now a testimony of the destructive power of sin. Yes, he knows it. But even more so, he's a testimony of the richness of God's mercy. Christian, we ought not to be afraid to be honest with others of the sin that still resides within us. I think people often make the mistake and they think, well, if I'm honest to my unbelieving friends about my sin, then it'll hurt my witness. I believe the opposite is true. Being dishonest about our sin hurts our witness. We're a mask of, of self-righteousness, pretending that everything is great, and we're so, somehow above the pressures of sin. That tends to hurt our witness. The non-Christian knows we still sin. They see it. We're not fooling anybody. But what about a witness that says, yes, I do still sin. I still sin, but what is greater than my sin is God's forgiveness and his mercy. Oh, I still struggle with sin. I hate my sin. I fight my sin. I fall to my sin. But thanks be to God that he's forgiven all of my sins. 
See, I believe that is a stronger witness than pretending like sin has no effect on us any longer. Not only is honest confession of sin a testimony to unbelievers, but it ought to be a testimony to believers as well. See, when everyone's afraid to talk about their own sins, and everyone puts on these masks of, hey, everything's great, it robs us of our freedom to bear one another's burdens. Are not the struggles of your sins a burden that weigh you down? Let us bear with one another. Honest confession of our sins ought to be such a regular part of our lives that we're constantly seeing the grace and forgiveness of God in our lives, in the lives of others. Why is it? Why is it that we can rejoice so passionately when when the wretched sinner first comes to know the Lord and salvation and we're like, wow, they were so bad. But look at them now. They're saved. That's great. But then when our brother or sister has committed such a large crime, such a large sin, we act as if they're no longer part of the redeemed. Why? Is not restoring grace just as much of the gospel as redeeming grace? Let us honestly confess our sins and show grace to one another and be a testimony of the grace of God. Lastly, what we see that true confession leads to a genuine worship of God. The response to true confession is then to live for Him. This is the complete picture of confession. It's repentance. True, true confession and repentance are inseparable. Let's look at verse 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See, when you are living in hidden, unrepentant sin or, or, or sin that continues to be unaddressed, it weighs on you. When there is guilt, you, you, you are paralyzed. Guilt will shut your mouth. Oh, but he says, now our mouths are open. See, when when, when you see the mercy and forgiveness of God and and you are led to repentance, you are then liberated to open your mouth for the glory and the praise of God. You are moved then to live for him in genuine worship. God's not concerned with just outward service. He's concerned with the inward heart. Look as he continues in verse 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Our service towards God, the sacrifices we make, the worship we offer, are not to be done out of duty or guilt. What is that? of a broken and contrite heart that honors the Lord. It's that worshipful heart that sees his gospel and says, God, I am a sinner and I deserve your judgment, but God has given me mercy and grace. And so, of course, this is what I must do. I have to worship you. Why would I go back to the old way? Why would I go back to my sin? That's disgusting. What I want is to live for you. What I want is to worship you. In confessing your sin, brothers and sisters, do you, do you see the grace of God? And are you moved to worship him more? Now, David's genuine repentance does not stop there. 
But as he seeks to worship God, his prayers, they're not just for himself, but they're for others as well. As we look at the last two verses, 18 and 19, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem that you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Sin has a ripple effect on others. While your sin is vertical, like we talked about, it also does have horizontal effects as well. And David knew this firsthand. As a result of his sin, their child died. Nathan, at the end of chapter 12, said, because of your sin, your child will die. And indeed he did. Not only was his sin affected, not only was his child affected by his sin, but Bathsheba once again affected by David's sin as now she loses her child. There is hope though. There is hope. Yeah, after they lost the child, it says in chapter 13 that David comforted Bathsheba and they bore another son. You know who that son was? Solomon. And it was Solomon. And out of the line of Solomon comes Christ. Comes Jesus. See, God redeems even our worst of sins. Like Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. So be encouraged, beloved, that your sin, while it has a ripple effect on many, it is not too powerful for God to use for his glory. So be encouraged. And what we see here in the heart of David is a concern for others. After confessing his sin, he, he's contemplating the ways in which it may have an effect upon the nation. His concern now is not just for himself, but for others as well. What a sign of true repentance. Sin is so selfish, seeking one's own pleasure. But a genuine repentance, David's not just looking inwardly now, but he's seeking the best for those around him. See, true confession leads to the genuine worship of God. As we close this, this afternoon, my hope is that through the life of David, you can see that confession indeed leads to refuge. That it is safe for us to confess our sins to God because in confession, we receive his mercy. We are renewed and restored and it leads to a greater worship of God. So Christian, confess your sins to God and find refuge in him. Those who, who are content to, to remain shallow in their dealings with sin, they don't know the joy of God's mercy. They're strangers to refuge found in him. Don't ignore your sin. Don't leave sin unaddressed. Don't become desensitized or even accepting of the sins in your life, but confess your sins to the Lord and find refuge in him. And Christian, do not forget the gospel. Don't forget the gospel. Don't live in guilt. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy that discredits the forgiveness you have in God. You are forgiven. Remember the grace you have in him. Remember that even though you were a wretched sinner, Christ died for you, that he bore your wrath on your behalf. In exchange, you receive his righteousness. Your debt, your entire debt 
was paid by Christ and you are now alive in him. Remember the gospel and be moved to live for him. Now, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, maybe today is the first time that you will truthfully confess your sins to God. I want to go back to a verse that Tom read earlier in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we say we have no sin, this is verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you, if you are not a Christian here today, please know this, that you need cleansing and you need the forgiveness of your sins and you have this in Christ. Salvation is, is not found anywhere else other than Christ. Salvation is not found in your own works. It's not found in tipping the scales of righteousness, of, of living a, a, a good life, a better life than a bad life. No. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. So go to him today in faith and repentance of your sin. And if you are here and you don't know the Lord and if you don't know entirely what that means, please find someone around you and ask them to explain that further. Confess your sins and find refuge. There is safety in the arms of God. It is not dangerous to confess your sins, but it is dangerous to leave your sins unconfessed. See that your sin is great and see that the mercy of God is greater. Go and find refuge in the arms of Christ. Let's pray.